Amen. Good morning. I've had the opportunity to come up and uh, to share and to preach a handful of times, but if we haven't met, my name is Grant Miller. I get to work here alongside of our college students. Uh, also, uh, as Scott mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm really excited about the opportunity and privilege to be um, coming in as the new university chaplain here at NNU. And uh, well, thank you. I definitely wanted you to applaud there. That was a... Uh, This is a little dry run for me, right? This is a space where I'm going to get to come in and be here. I doubt I will be uh, speeding from Middleton uh, every morning before chapel, like I did this morning when I went out to to share with our friends there, but uh, it's a huge privilege to be here this morning with you. I'm going to be honest, as we continue today through our series in Ephesians, uh, the text is not particularly fun. And where Scott man, just has this ability to pull these deep, kind of timeless, philosophical and theological truths and relate every verse back to Exodus. I don't know if if even he could do that today, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Let's open our Bibles today to Ephesians chapter 4. I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we read. We're starting in verse 23, verse 23 this morning. Instead, renew the thinking in your mind by the Spirit and clothe yourselves with the new person created according to God's image in justice and true holiness. Therefore, after you've gotten rid of lying, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Thieves should no longer steal. Instead, they should go to work using their hands to do good so that they will have something to share with whoever's in need. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Don't make the Holy Spirit of God unhappy. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, and slander along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. So as Pastor Scott covered last week, uh, the book of Ephesians, like many other uh, Pauline epistles, right, these letters that Paul writes to various churches throughout Asia Minor, we've got two sections sort of rough divisions here in the book of Ephesians. Uh, The the first three chapters are are essentially this great big treatise of Pauline theology, right? This is often what he does. He opens with this big, long explanation and tracking the story of salvation and and how we've been saved by grace and redeemed. And then typically, uh, Paul, and Paul does this very strongly in Ephesians, about halfway through, he just hangs a left and says, therefore now, here's how your life should look because of all of that truth. And we talked about last week how Uh, He opens that section with, we're one. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We've been saved. This identity is going to transform us. And now we get into a list of basically, so therefore, stop being jerks to each other, Ephesians. It really makes you wonder, right, reading this list of things, what's going on in Ephesus, right? In the Ephesian church. The way Paul writes about sin, I mean, we cover a lot of ground here, but The consistent theme in this passage today is that anger is really an issue in Ephesus. So we start with this this story of 
Uh, in your anger, don't sin, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then we get into the section about thieves no longer stealing, but building something new, not letting foul language come out of their mouths. But then we come back to anger in a long list. Bitterness, rage, depending on what version you might use, malice, shouting, slander. All of these are words which ultimately have their roots back in this notion of anger, this idea. It seems pretty important for Paul to lay that out for the Ephesians, uh, and I think it's pretty important for us too, uh, because anger is easy to justify sometimes, right? And, and clearly, Paul is not saying that anger in and of itself is a sin, or is something that is immediately kind of morally normative, right? It's okay, I think, for us to recognize that anger can uh, prompt us to action, and that if we're encouraged in our anger not to sin, we can therefore be angry separate from de- devolving into sin. But immediately it's followed with this idea, right, that we should not let the sun set. Therefore, right, anger has an end point. It has to stop at some point. So uh, if we're thinking about emotion as it relates to creating reactions out of anger, we have to understand that it's going to stop at some point or it's going to become habituated in your life. Now, there's a lot of thinking about anger over the years as a habit. Um, And over the years, I mean over the thousands of years. Uh, If Scott were here, uh, he would probably launch into a discussion of Aristotle, right? Nicomachean ethics, rhetoric. You know, Aristotle recognized that anger was ultimately one of the biggest issues in the work and and development of moral habits. In fact, Aristotle says anger is only good for one thing, and it's for the rhetorician who can use anger to win arguments. Because it's really, really easy. If you want to win an argument, make your opponent, the person across the table, angry. Because to Aristotle, what that does is it stops you from being able to engage with your rational reasoning mind. Right? And there's nothing better, right, than to get somebody so wound up in their own words they can't figure it out. The other thing that a rhetorician can use anger for is to motivate a crowd. Really easy to get an anger group of people feeling self-righteous about all the ways that they've been hurt and to prompt them to action, to do what you want. Uh, Augustine also wrote a lot about anger, right? He, habituated emotion was important to him. He said this, no one who is angry considers his anger unjust. And then went on to say, anger habitually cherished becomes hatred. In fact, for, for Augustine, what he eventually says is, it would be better for us to close our hearts entirely to anger because our own sense of moral righteousness allows a young sapling to become a mighty oak. And then it becomes harder and harder to fill the chambers of our hearts with the things of Christ when it's been supplanted by this root of anger. Now, I, I do think it's important here uh, as we talk about anger. I know enough mental health professionals, even in this room, who would say anger in and of itself should not be uh, suppressed, right? We should, we should seek positive ways to process those feelings. I think over the, over the years, sometimes when we have these strong emotion reactions, one of the first things we might try to do is say, well, those are negative feelings. I have to get rid of them. I can't express them. I have to get rid of them. I have to suppress them. That's, that's bad. That's physiologically bad for you, right? And this week as I was reading about anger, uh, one of the most interesting things I encountered was this biological explanation of what happens to you when you get angry. And literally, across the board, it's all bad for you, physically. Your body, your, your, your heart rate goes up, hypertension increases, blood pressure increases, adrenaline go, pumps into your body. 
what's happening when you genuinely feel that sense of anger is you're getting ready to fight. That's what your body is doing. Into your brain, right? Adrenaline, cortisol just gets dumped into your prefrontal cortex, which actually inhibits your ability to create short-term memories. It kills your brain cells, which is why when a lot of people who fly into fits of rage, they can't remember what they did or what they said because they physically have an impediment that prevents them from from creating short-term memory. It's why when you or I get into a really high-stakes conversation and we have all these things we wanted to say, this argument we wanted to make, we can't remember what we wanted to say, right? That witty retort, right? We're getting this real zinger. You can't find it. That's okay. It's, It's biological. But here's the thing. I've jumped right in talking about anger and emotions and habituated feelings, and for many of us in the room... I'm not seeing like a strong connection, right? And when I read this initially, I go, okay, I can handle that. You know, I haven't been in a screaming match for weeks. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But you might be reflecting on your life, right? You might not have, anger might not have prompted you to have this red-faced shouting screaming match that we might typically identify as angry behavior. You might never have engaged in in a fist fight or physical violence where anger prompted you to respond in such a way that that you did something visceral and physical, red face, veins bulging. That might not be an expression of anger in your life. But Paul isn't willing to just sit on that kind of immediate idea, which is where this list at the back end of chapter 4 comes in handy and why it's so important. Malice, slander, bitterness— These imply, right, that anger can be quieter, subtle, internally rooted, not burning hot, but cold, and possessing a firmer grip on our souls than maybe we'd be willing to admit. And so while that anger might be less jarring in its expression, it's just as toxic to the person that we are. (laughs) I'll tell you a story. I've told this story a handful of times um, in the word and table at the early service. When I was a freshman, when I came to NNU, I lived in the dorm, and I, uh, I needed, we, we had to sign out if we were leaving overnight at the time, right? That was kind of the way it was. You signed out before really phones were super commonplace and kind of a holdover of needing to know where people were if they were leaving. And so I needed to sign out in the logbook before I left for Thanksgiving break. I went uh, to look for an RA to get me the book. Couldn't find one. I had to find another RA. Got the, got the, the office unlocked. I got the sign-out book, filled it out, left, came back. Really stressful trip, actually. Uh, when I came driving back from Vancouver for, for Thanksgiving to come back to classes, my transmission went out in my car. And so I'm just like really stressed out coming back off of that trip. Uh, and I get in my room, and I have a fine slip on my, on my desk, under the door, on, on my desk. Under the door. Yeah, under the door. And it's for three dollars. I had failed to completely fill out one of the boxes on the checkout slip. And it was three dollars a box. And so fairness is really important to me. I'm an, uh, Scott talked about the Enneagram last week. I'm an eight, which means that I'm totally down with rules as long as they apply equally to everyone. I, uh, a couple days later, the entire dorm got an email from our RD. And it said, hey everybody, something like this, said, hey everybody, uh, Thanksgiving was this last weekend, like 75 of you forgot to sign out. And at that time, it was a $50 fine, just blanket, if you forgot to sign out. So 75 of you just forgot to sign out or ignored it. But hey, we have two weeks until finals. 
trying not to kill morale. We're just kind of forgiving that across the board and let that be a, a lesson to you, essentially, right? Don't forget, this is a huge, important thing. Uh, we're going to forgive those fines. Well, I'm like, all right, sweet, cool. So I go to my RA, though, just in case, and say, hey, so I, I got the email, so I just want to make sure that my fine that you wrote me is, is taken care of, right? And he said, well, no, you remembered to sign out. <laughs> Your fine is for something completely different. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I said, well, I want to talk to RD. He said, you can go talk to RD if you want. Um, so I went and met with the RD, kind of laid out my case, and looking back, like, I understand the RD, and having been, right, living in the dorm and understanding the way that, how hard it is for RAs to, to really hold their peers accountable in many ways, the RD, the RD backed his RA up. He said, look, it's his dis- discretion, and he, and he has made that choice. We're going to go ahead and, like, I'm not going to cancel this fine. Okay. And then he said something which, as I have helped to coach and lead student leaders and others in this world that we live in, uh, he said this. So the real question, right, whenever we have a fine, I know you're upset, is what have you learned from this situation? <laughs> and I, uh, I was not in a fit of rage. I was not having trouble making short-term memories. And what I said to him was, what I've learned is, if I want to get away with something here, I just need to convince 50 people to do it, and I won't get in trouble. <laughs> because you'll be too afraid to, to find me. Now, I feel like I've got the room on my side here. <laughs> I see the reactions here, and you're going, yeah! And I felt really justified when I went and paid that $3 fine in pennies, Right? But here's the problem, and I'm going to confess to you today. I was not engaged in a sin of commission. I did not scream at the RD. I did not get red-faced. I did not go badmouth him to other people. I did not break something on my way out the door to show how frustrated I was. But I had a rage inside of me that was not aligned with the kingdom vision of how I should be living my life. And while I did not commit a sin, I absolutely was guilty of a sin of omission, right? Because respect, love, those were absent from my heart. This is the danger of anger in our hearts. Because it becomes so easy to justify our anger or our malice or slander or rage or bitterness. And when we do so, I exchange a vision, an imagination, the mind of Christ for my own, which says, I have a good reason for feeling this way. I exchange the hands and feet of Christ in the world for my hands and feet, which is a losing trade for everyone, right? Always. And though I think we can justify our anger sometimes, we can even spiritualize it, right? And say, well, Grant, Jesus got angry in the temple, made that whip. God is jealous and angry. Like sin causes God's wrath to rage. Scriptures don't tend to imply, however, that anger is ever a result of the outpouring of the Spirit on the world. I've looked. You can look. I'll save you the effort, though. It's not there. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians don't say love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, rage, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. They don't say it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 does not say anger 
is kind or patient or does not envy or boast or, or, pr- or is not proud. In fact, it says what? That it's love is slow to anger, in fact. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, where we're going to get, right, if you keep reading, we talk about the armor of God. It doesn't say put on the breastplate of self-righteousness or the belt of your truth, my truth, or feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of wrath, but peace. So just like Augustine says, you might be able to justify your anger for a season, but it is a nice edge from straying into a place where anger becomes a habituated model of life. And when we do that, we begin to immediately trade out a vision of the kingdom of new creation for the old. What we're trying to do there, by justifying our anger, is we're trying to drag the old creation into the new. We're trying to create systems of justification and reconciliation and say, well, I feel really good about being mad about this. And no, I didn't scream, but I, yeah, I, I talked really badly about it with my friends at breakfast. And we're dragging that sense of the old creation into the new. We're making excuses for how we feel rather than being fully transformed and renewed. So even though, right, Christ calls us to newness, this passage today opened with that sentiment. I think so often our imaginations have been shaped by justifications for strong emotional, habituated emotional reactions, and warped by the ways that those become then sinful habits, that it becomes really hard to live into the new, because all we're trying to really do is adapt the old. I'll just give it a quick software update, and then we'll be set. And I really struggled with this idea when I uh, got, to, got to college specifically. I, I really struggled being in this, this world of Nazarene theology. I didn't grow up in the Nazarene church. I had never really heard or had preached to me ideas of entire sanctification or new creation, really, or honestly, Christian perfection, which I think is really a, a tough term to wrestle with. And I struggled with ideas uh, that were talked about in our, <laughs> in our theolog- theological tradition, like this idea that, well, if, if God says, right, if Christ says, be perfect, therefore, as, as your heavenly Father is perfect, I don't know how that works. Right? I don't understand how I can take the old and have it be made new. I, I, like Nicodemus, right? I was like, I don't understand, Lord, how can an old man re-enter his mother's womb? What does that even mean? So the entire idea of that call to perfection, that call to newness, was for me always going to be a struggle because I was couched in this idea. I had to adapt the old. I had to adapt my old excuses. I had to adapt the old behaviors, the habituated anger, in order to become more like Jesus. But I don't know how that works, right? That's not what Christ calls me to. And here's, here's one of the reasons why I struggled so much. It's because that idea of being made perfect, right, what I had in my head was, was a byproduct of the language that we use. So so I will dip into uh, Pastor Scott's pool here, right, and get a little uh, academic for you, right? This is good if you're missing that. So what shaped my imagination of what it meant to be made new, what it meant to be made perfect, Christian perfection, was this idea of the word perfect, right? I just got hung up on that word. I think it's easy to get hung up on the word because the word perfect, the English word, comes from a Latin word, perfectum. And that Latin word perfectum uh, means a lot of different things, but it ultimately relates back to this kind of abstract ideal, right? Something that we kind of think about. It's, it's perfect without, without flaw in any way, um, but ultimately not able to be realized on earth, right? This is a very Platonic idea, like Plato talks about the forms, right? So it's perfection, but it's more abstract. And that's why it was a struggle for me, is because 
if I'm supposed to be made new and be made perfect, well, I feel like that's impossible, right? It's only something I can imagine. So I just have to adapt the old and be made new, right? I just have to kind of drag along all of the old creation. But here's the lucky thing, right? And I've learned this through my time and from great professors here and instruction that I've gotten. Luckily, right, the New Testament, not written in Latin, which is fortunate for us, written in Greek, so when we run across words in the New Testament where the, where the word perfect exists in English, right? Be per- perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect love, casting out fear. Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. The, the word there is not perfectum. In nearly every case, it's this word, telos. Some of you might be familiar with that idea. Teleology is an English word that we use. But telos refers not to this abstract ideal, but to be, being perfect for a task, perfectly suited completely sufficient. Doing what an object was made to do. That is telos. That is perfect in that idea. I think it's time to introduce my, uh, my speaking partner here. You might be going, oh, what, what are we doing? Song time? Maybe. This is a, uh, a guitar I inherited from my great uncle, my, uh, my grandfather's brother. Um, this is a, uh, just to give you, you guitar nerds out there, this is a, a Gibson Roy Smex Stage Deluxe is the title. That's what it says up here. It was made uh, between 1936 and 1942 by Gibson. This is an old guitar, an old guitar. Originally uh, meant to be played Hawaiian style, which is a, uh, refers to slack tuning and open tuning so that when you strum it, it plays like a chord instead of being a bunch of uh, different notes, kind of like a ukulele, right? Ukuleles are, are similarly tuned. It also has a really short neck, it's meant to be played kind of finger style. Uh, somewhere along the line, my, my great-uncle picked this guitar up. He, uh, he was a Wyoming boy. He lived a long, uh, pretty lonely life. He, he went to Harvard in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and got caught up in kind of the cultural revolution happening at the time, right, and all of that entails. Um, got really into the folk music scene, had a, had a folk music group for a while. You can go out and YouTube my uncle, Paul Arnoldi, and listen to some songs that he wrote, which is fun. And then later, he made his way to Cal Berkeley after finishing at Harvard, and I think, again, very swept up in the, in the scene of the moment. And my uncle lived a long and, and lonely and hard life in a lot of ways. He died really tragically a couple years ago in a, in a car accident that took his and another person's life. This guitar and several others were in his mobile, single-wide, right, uh, mobile home you know, on, on the Oregon coast. When you look at this guitar, uh, it's not perfectum. If you can't see it, we can go camera two here. Oh, nobody's over there. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I'm just kidding. But the finish is cracked, and there's a lot of wear and tear. There are chips taken out of the, of the paint. There's scratches all over the back. The neck is worn from times, like hands sliding back and forth. And when I got it, it, it buzzed like crazy. It, it had some issues with the, with the alignment of the fretboard. And uh, it also just smelled really like smoke. This guitar has been in a lot of places that I have never been, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so the guitar is not perfectum in any way. But this guitar was made for a purpose. 
So I took it to a luthier, and, and he did some work on it. And Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. I went to pick this guitar up from the luthier, which is a fancy word for a guitar repairman. He had two um, contact speakers sitting here on the body. If you know anything about you know, how guitars are made and kind of the acoustics of it, uh, this ultimately acts as a speaker. The sound hole just had music coming out of it. I couldn't have, wouldn't have been able to hear it without the, the sound hole. I said to this guy, uh, what's the story? What, what is it? What's this? said, oh yeah, I've been playing music through the guitar for like 36 hours. The guitar was in rough shape. And I did some work to it. But one of the main things it needed is that guitar, the wood, just had to remember what it meant to have music coursing through it. That has stuck with me. The wood had, had to be warmed up. And once it got aligned with its purpose... It was ready to go. As I think about our world, as I think about the struggles that we have constantly, finding that line between dragging the old into the new and simply letting it go, putting it to death, and being made new, instead of focusing on the warps and the, the, the chips and the cracks, we are called to align our lives with a greater tune. A music that, as we sang earlier, echoes down through eternity. We are made to sing a song that has existed since the creation of the universe. And when we allow habits that pull us from that song, right? Anger that pulls us as a counter melody out of the rhythm of God. It becomes so much more difficult to be aligned with that kingdom vision. And so not only are you and I made to be played by the master to sing the song that we were made to sing. But we, as part of the kingdom of God, are also called to point at others who carry with them whatever, age, cracks, flaws, and to say to them, you are called to something better. Out in the world, to see all those who might struggle and to say, there's a song that you were made to sing. You just have to, you just have to warm up to it. And so, I 
think what Paul wants to point out here to the Ephesians, he continues to point it out with a variety of things to, to purge in their lives and new behaviors to build in new habits of heart and soul. What he is doing is simply trying to teach them to sing the song. And that's what it means to live into the new creation. One of my favorite book series, and I've quoted it before, um, is the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the first book, the first book, if you read them, kind of the way they're meant to be read for the story, but the magician's nephew at the very end, this cast of characters arrives in the land of Narnia, and it's asleep. The land's asleep. It hasn't been created yet. It's dark. And slowly over the horizon, they see the sun coming up, but it's not the sun. It's just light kind of growing. And they also begin to hear something. They begin to hear a song being sung. Who's singing that song? And our first introduction in the series to Aslan the lion is they begin to see this beast pacing across the horizon, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they realize that lion is singing the song. And everywhere the lion walks, everywhere the light touches, springs forth with new life. And the, the evil character in the story, the one who, would later become, who later becomes the white witch, right, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, she's there and she hates the song. She can't stand it to the point that she engages, right, in the biological reaction of anger. She tries to fight the lion and throws something at him, and then she runs. One of the beautiful promises of being in the new creation is that when we lean into and recognize the song, it becomes all the easier to uproot the, the, the places in our lives that have maybe gone over to, to bad habits, habituated sins. That's one of God's promises to us. But this morning, as we, as we close, I want to invite you to put on that new creation, to put on the new imagination of what it means to sing the song of new creation. Would you pray with me? God, we do just thank you so much for being here, for being present with us. We love you, Lord. Lord, I pray this morning as we consider and continue to worship, I pray for two things. For one, that we would be cognizant of the ways we have allowed habituated sins, things to take root, little things that we might be able to justify in the short term, but that ultimately pull us away from you and your vision for us. Help us to live into the promise of the new creation, which says, be like Christ. And Lord, we pray for that reality, not only so that we might be the best versions of ourselves, but rather we pray for that reality so we might become the best versions of who you have made us to be, to become like Jesus, to become hands and feet. And Lord, the second thing I pray is that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, the song of new creation that echoes throughout our world, that we would be equipped and empowered by your Spirit to point to those in our world who need you most, those who are dealing with trauma and pain and suffering and to say Christ is here with you Christ is around you and Christ is within you calling you to be made new to sing the song we love you Lord and we thank you for the blessing of our time together this morning in Jesus name Amen